So let me ask something first. For those, um, oh, if you have more than one child, so we're talking about a parable about a father with two sons. So if you have at least two kids who you've raised, raise your hand. Okay, good number of you. I, I want you, I think there's a phrase you have heard um, that I'm not sure you'd only have if you have one child, so it, I think you have to have two, but it goes like this. Hey, that's not fair. He got more than me. Am I right in thinking that that is a phrase you've heard many times? I, I you know, I knew parenting would be a challenge. I knew there would be things that you know, you'd have to work through. I don't think going into it, I was expecting how, how important it was to make sure no child got more than, than the other, than their sibling did. And how often you are like, okay, if he gets this, then he can get this. Or, oh, if they had soda for dinner, well, then I obviously got to be able to get soda for, you know, it, it, whatever it is, you spend a lot of your time as a parent trying to make sure it's all equal. Because if one of your kids suspects their sibling, their brother or sister got more than them, well, we see in this parable about a, a brother who thinks the younger brother got a better deal. So as we go through this parable, and this, if, if you, you may have noticed this is actually week number two in the, pretty much the same scripture, we have two more weeks yet. We are going to dig into this. I am... Uh, using some insights from Tim Keller's book, The Prodigal God. We still have a few copies left if you want to get a hold of one. Uh, we're, we're selling these for $10, or you can get it on your own. It, it doesn't matter. But I would encourage you to read along, because I think there are insights in Keller's book. And today, so last week we focused on the younger brother, the one known as the prodigal son, the one who went to a distant country and blew through his inheritance in record time. And then he realized how stupid he'd been, how foolish, and how life is so much better back with the father. And he makes that great decision to come home, to come back to his father, to own up to the fact that he had messed up and now wants to be back with his, his father. And when he comes back, we see how the father is more gracious than he could have ever expected and welcomes him back, not only forgiving the, the stupid decisions, but having a great feast to celebrate that his son was dead and is alive. His son was lost and is found. And this is not just a story about fathers and sons. It's a story about our father and all of us, sons and daughters alike, that, that to, to know God is to be like the prodigal that we've come home. And we've come into a relationship to live with our father as part of his household. So if you missed last week, I would just encourage you, go, go back to, we, it's on YouTube and other places where you can kind of catch this. Because last week focused on that younger son. Today, I want to look at the other half of the story. Because Jesus was not done teaching he went on to this older brother. So how does the older bro brother respond to the return of the younger son? And the, if you want to summarize it, what is he, his response is simply, hey, that's not fair. 
right? He got more than me. He is upset. So when he hears, he is in the field out working, right? He's doing what he's supposed to be doing. He's doing the work necessary, and he hears a hubbub. He hears the noise and the, the, the celebration beginning, and he's like, what's going on? And so he flags down a servant, and he finds out the party has already started, the, the feast, the celebration. He hears music and dancing, and he asks a servant and, and says, you know, what's going on? It is then he hears about the return of his younger brother, the one who had been lost for so long, but has now come home. And what is the, his first response to that news? Anger. He is angry. Now, you may resonate with that unfairness, right? You may think, well, yeah, Think of all the money that the younger son wasted. And maybe, maybe you're an older sibling and you, you know how often your younger brother got away with things that you would never get away with. And maybe you're thinking, yeah, he should be angry. But think about what it means. His brother, who might have been dead for all he knew, came home and his first response is anger. He gets angry. The second response is he stands outside the feast. He refuses to come into the celebration. He makes the conscious choice he isn't going in. He's keeping his distance from his brother and his father. He says, he answered his father, look, these many years I've served you and I've never disobeyed your command." This is how you're treating me. And so what's the third response we see? He is full of resentment towards not, note how it's aimed at. It's it's aimed at his father. It's aimed at, in the sense we're talking about God. You never, you know, he was the dutiful son his father owed him. You never did something like this for me. And then he says, you know, you, you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. It's not fair. He got more than me. And then he goes on to say, when the son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes. What's the fourth response? Judgment towards his brother. You know, how Did he really know how his brother spent that money? Um, Might be right, but how would he know? And nowhere is there compassion for the the situation that his brother was in. He comes home with with nothing. You know, no shoes, not, not adequate clothing. Life was hard, and he has no concern for the brother and what he was getting. He's getting what he deserved. It's full of judgment towards his brother. And the fifth response, it's kind of a summary. His heart was hardened. Note how he says, this son of yours. Right? It's not my brother. It's the son of yours. He's creating distance, hardness towards both his father and his brother. There's no joy at the return 
no compassion. His heart was hardened. So Jesus is telling this story for a reason. And, and just as we did last week, to understand it, you've got to look at the context. In fact, I had Bill start the reading with the first two verses of Luke 15, which are the key to seeing what Jesus is getting across. So in 1 and 2, it says that, that in the ministry of Jesus, there were the tax collectors and sinners. These were people who had made bad life choices. They were coming and hearing Jesus. They were drawing near to Jesus. And Jesus was engaging them. It says that he would even eat with these tax collectors and sinners. He was letting them be a part of his ministry. These were people whose lives were being changed. They were the prodigal sons who were coming home. They were coming back. And the, the, the eating together, the celebration feast is a picture of salvation. They were not just being a part of Jesus' ministry. They were coming into salvation um, with the Father, coming back to eternal life. So that's the, the, the younger son, what he represents. The older son then represents the Pharisees and scribes. It says, you know, seeing what was going on, the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. They're, they are responding to the, the return of the younger brother in a certain way. So who are the Pharisees and scribes? A scribe was a, you could say, a Bible teacher. It was a, someone who knew how to read and write and studied the law and gave their interpretations. The Pharisees were a particular group of scribes and teachers of the law who were very strict in their inher- adherence to the Old Testament law. Now, theologically, when it's talking about the Pharisees, they were pretty much correct on their doctrine. Jesus and the Pharisees would have taught the same things about the nature of God and the Bible. The Pharisees would have said that this is God's word. The, uh, the, the Pharisees believed that there would be a judgment day and a resurrection but the thing is, the Pharisees thought, you know, this, this future salvation, resurrection, they, they pretty much knew they would be in it, and they didn't think that these other guys would be. So they had the same, they had the right doctrines, but there's something missing. And so Jesus tells the story in a way that he's pointing things out. In fact, I think he's trying to help the Pharisees and scribes see the truth, see and understand what he's doing and come on board. He's inviting them. Just as the parable invited the, the sinners and, and, and tax collectors to come home, come home to God, he's inviting the Pharisees and scribes to get on board, to come inside and be a part of what he's doing instead of being against him. So how did the Pharisees and scribes respond to Jesus and the things he was doing when Jesus says, I come to bring good news for the poor, I've come to announce freedom of cap- of ca- for those who are captives. I've come to announce God's blessing. The kingdom of God is at hand. God's ready to do something. How did they respond? Well, first of all, they responded in anger. Mark 2, 7 says, Why does this man speak like that? Speaking of Jesus. He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? 
So when Jesus talked about forgiving sins, that was their response, anger. When Jesus invited people to, to eat and drink with him, Luke 5.30 says, And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? They, they responded with resentment. When Jesus, but the, with the power of God upon him, was doing miracles of healing, changing people's lives, Mark 3.2 says, And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. They saw Jesus do these miracles that were changing people's lives, and they grumbled and looked for ways to accuse. They came with judgmental attitudes towards those who weren't part of their group. Mark 7, 5 says, The Pharisees and the scribes asked Jesus, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but they eat with defiled hands? They were judgmental towards those who weren't following their traditional rules. And most of all, their hearts were hard, not only to Jesus, but but what God was doing through Jesus. So when Jesus was doing so many miracles, people could see there was a spiritual power upon him. How do they respond? And it says, Mark 3.22, it says, The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebub. And by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. Do you understand what that's saying? It's that the Holy Spirit was working through Jesus. God's Holy Spirit was working through Jesus. They're looking at that and they're saying, that is Satan at work. Their hearts are so hard to God and to other people that they could not see what God was doing. They're calling what the Holy Spirit, they're calling him the, the, spirit, of the, de- the spirit of Satan. Even as God was doing amazing works in their midst, Jesus had come to seek and to save the lost. And by his miracles, they were demonstrating the kingdom of God had come. And you see, the Pharisees and scribes were supposed to be the ones that were inviting people. And Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. I used this picture last week. I love this. So you see how it's almost like a little cross? Jesus created a way, a path, an opening by which, which all people, sinners included, could get to God. Right? He created the path. If we trust in him, we, through Jesus, we come back to the Father. The Pharisees and scribes were the ones that were given God's word. Right? They were, they were supposed to be on board with what Jesus was doing. Right? When, when the Father says to the older son, All I have is yours. I think what he's talking about is it's saying that just to these, these, these scribes and, and Pharisees, hey, you, you had all you needed, right? You were you the teachers of the kingdom. All, all God had was given to you. But what are they doing? Instead of getting on board, they're standing outside and refusing to come in. Jesus is inviting them to think to, to, to reconsider that, to come on in and be a part of this ministry of seeking and saving the lost. I believe Jesus told this parable to teach that there are two ways to distance yourself from God. There are two sons, and each represent a different way to become alienated from a good and loving father. I I could call it two spiritual dangers. One of them is outright rebellion. 
the younger son who says, I can find life on my own. The other one is outward dutifulness. That's a weird word, dutifulness. Outward, outward attitude of duty. So, in, in his book, Keller gives a little different phrasing on this. He calls the, the path of the younger son self-discovery. And we, we did this as a repeat from last week, but so he described it's, it's someone who's not going to follow the traditional rules of society, but going to seek their own path in life, right? Look inside my heart and find who I am. So the, the person choosing the way of self-discovery says, I'm the only one who can decide what is right and wrong for me. I'm going to live as I want to live and find my true self and happiness that way. That's one way of alienating yourself from a good and loving father, outright rebellion. I'm going to go find my own way. That's the younger brother. The older brother, the elder son, is that the way of what Keller calls moral conformity. I'm going to give you a long quote because I think, I think he captures something here that I think this opened my eyes to what Jesus was saying when I first read this book. He's saying the elder brother in the parable illustrates the way of moral conformity. The Pharisees of Jesus' day believed that while they were a chosen, a people chosen by God, they could only maintain their place in his blessing and receive final salvation through strict obedience to the Bible. There are innumerable varieties of, the, of this paradigm, but they all believed in putting the will of God and the standards of the community ahead of individual fulfillment. And says, in this view, we only attain happiness and a world made right by achieving moral rectitude. Right? So it's this picture of if I keep all the laws, that's the way I got to do it. I got to be very uh, morally precise in our, our way of following God. That's what God is most looking for. I asked God to give me an illustration of this this week. So God will do this sometimes. I'll be preaching on something, and I'll see some event. And so while I was swimming, I, I, I'm a lap swimmer, and I u- use the YMCA, and I'd, I'd done my laps, and it's qu- kind of crowded. You know, oftentimes have to end up sharing a lap lane. Like, you know, you kind of you got to have two people using one lane. Usually there's that many of that. And so... Afterwards, I'm sitting in the hot tub, relaxing, and I just kind of watch him. And there, there's one guy who swims, and I see him there all the time. And he, he does, let's just say, he does his own thing, man. Like, he, he swims backwards, and he's, it's like he's doing yoga in the pool. I, I don't mean to demean him. Like, he's, he's going for it. I could tell it's probably a, a good exercise program. Like, he's flipping upside down, and he's all over the place as he does, you know, his thing in the lap lane, right? He's, he's discovering for himself the right way to swim. And so he was in one lane, and then I saw a young woman come in, and she, she looked like a, a fit swimmer, I could tell. And so she, you know, there's, there's no other lanes open, so she's sharing one with him. And she has perfect form. Like, I was just kind of watching. Like, I could tell she, she had a coach that trained her on all the proper techniques of, of that. And, and she, so she's swimming by him, and he's all over the place. And 
I'm amazed, like, it, it worked. I could tell they kind of had to watch out for each other. But that's, that's that picture of, right, the, the find your own way, man. Dude, I just, just everyone should just, like, figure it out and, and love and peace and all that. And, you know, then you have the, no, there's an exact proper way to do this. And you got to have everything, you know, exactly. So that's that. I, maybe this is a weird illustration. I'm, I, you know, I don't, it's what God gave me. So it's what you're getting. <laughs> but, but there's this idea. It's almost like it's two personality types in some ways. And I think if you start looking, you see the same cultural dynamic and the sniping back and forth. You know, who, you know each side thinks, you know, if everyone, if everyone just followed the rules and did everything exactly right, this would be a better society. The problem is those guys, right? They just won't keep keeping the lines. And then the other people are like, dude, if people are just more relaxed, you know, and more casual, and it's all those, you know, people who are really, you know, like all those religious people or whatever. So you see the danger from the other side. Um, now, it doesn't matter how you swim because it's swimming. But applying this to your spiritual life, to your relationship with God, what Jesus is saying is there are two dangers that can, can lead you away from God. And, and one of them is this, this outright rebellion that says, I don't need God, I'll do my own thing. That's kind of obvious. But the other one that's more subtle is that of the Pharisees inscribed as outward dutifulness. Right? It's, it's in your outward life, doing all the things you're supposed to do, but there's something key that's missing, and you see that, right? Why was the older brother's response a problem? I mean, didn't he say, I I do everything my father says? Well, let's think about this for a minute. What What did the younger son want? When he said to his father, give me my share of the inheritance, but I'm gonna go away from you. He says, what the younger son wanted, he wanted the father's stuff, but not the father himself, not the relationship, not the closeness with the father. And what do we see? The the same with the older son. You never gave me even a goat, right? He wanted the father's stuff, but was turning away from a relationship with the father. The father's inviting him in for, for the celebration And Jesus ends it the way he does because it's a question mark. Will the older brother come into the party or not? And will the Pharisees and scribes, how will they? Will they see the opportunity to be a part of what God is doing? Or will they they keep themselves out? Jesus told another parable kind of to teach the same idea. It's It's about two people that went to pray. One was a Pharisee and one was a, a tax collector. And the tax collector comes in and says, I know I've sinned. Father, forgive me. And the Pharisee looks at that, that, that tax collector and says, Father, I thank you. I'm not like these other people. Right? I do this and I, I tithe and I follow all your laws. And Jesus says, when God saw that, only one of those men went home right before God, and it wasn't the Pharisee. That self-righteous, self-justification was, was that elder brother quality, that moral conformity that's missing something. 
And what Jesus is saying is it's possible to be religious, to be a moral conformist, and yet be lost to God. Sin is not just breaking the rules. It is putting yourself in the place of God at the center of life um, to make yourself your own Savior, your own Lord and Judge. Oh, I have another quote from from Keller. So Keller writes, You can avoid Jesus as Savior by keeping all the moral laws. If you do that, then you have rights. God owes you answered prayers and a good life and a ticket to heaven when you die. You don't need a Savior who pardons you by free grace, for you are your own Savior. That is the danger of outward dutifulness, of believing I'm all set because I follow the rules. And, And it's ignoring the fact that your heart is full of anger and resentment and self righteousness and that you are keeping distance from God. Brothers and sisters, this is a warning for people in the church about missing out on the heart of God even as you, as you fulfill all your religious duties. What is the Father's ultimate goal for each person? What does God want for us? There's a verse that says, He wants to take away our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. God is not content with mere rule keepers. And yes, we do need to learn his law that's given for our good and learn to follow what he says. But thats he's not content with that. He wants to transform our hearts. When Jesus taught, he says, you know, it's, it's good that you don't murder someone, but, you know, you've heard that law, but but." You need to go further and not have anger in your heart towards your brother, right? You, you've heard the law, do not commit adultery. Yeah, keep that one. But you also need to deal with the lust that's in your heart, right? Or, or he says, you, you, know, you know enough to, be, to, to love those who love you back, to love your friends. But I tell you, if you want to be like God your Father, love the person who doesn't love you back. Love the person who can be of no benefit to you or even love your enemies. You see, God's goal for us is that we would become like Christ. That we, in our inner being, would be shaped. That we would have a close relationship that's not just about following the rules, it's about drawing near and becoming like Jesus, the the Son of God. But here's the problem. We can't do it. Because our heart is full of greed and envy and lust and, and all, the, all of that, the only way it happens is if his Holy Spirit comes in and begins to make it happen. Right? He, we can't get there by our own self-discipline and moral rectitude. We have to have an, an infusion from outside come into our heart and reshape it. And that's what happens when the Holy Spirit comes in when we say yes to that kind of relationship with God, God, come into my life through your spirit. Galatians 5 describes it this way. What, what does God bring into our life? What grows in our hearts when we say yes to the spirit? 
the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. The exact opposite of anger, resentment, self-righteousness, distance. And I love how it ends. It says, against such things, there is no law. Right? It's not that the laws are bad, but the laws don't get you to where this and where God wants to bring you. I want to show you something. I, I think this is amazing. In Romans 8, I think it lays out the plan um, of what God's trying to do in our life. And so Romans 8.15 talks about how um, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. So when we come to Christ, we are adopted as, as into the family. And then, but it says this, and then we have the spirit that, that calls out Abba Father in our heart. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So when we come to God through Christ, we are adopted into the family, which means we are children. We are received as children of God, children of our Father in heaven. Now, those of you who have have young ones, do you want them to stay as children? Well, sometimes, because they're, you know, cuter that way. But but really, you wouldn't actually want your child to always stay a child. You receive them as a child, as an infant. You want them to grow to be sons and daughters of, of adults, right? In the same way, we are received as children, but God's plan for us is that ultimately we would be full-blown sons and daughters who reflect the character and heart of God. That is God's intention for our life. And that, so back to Romans 8. Um, Romans 8, 19 says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. God is at work to reveal those who have become children ultimately will be revealed as sons and daughters, full heirs, as we reflect the character of God and heart of God within us. And so that's what God's at work at in your life. You want to know what God's working for in you? He's working for in each of us that we would be revealed as a, a son and daughter of God. So verse 28, Romans. Romans. Um, it starts off with saying, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So he has a purpose for us, right? So he knows he has a purpose, and, and he's working towards that purpose. In fact, this, this verse is amazing. It says, all the things that happen in our life, even the, the bad things, maybe especially the bad things, the hard things, are at work for this purpose that God has for us. Then the next verse, it says, what, what's the purpose is? The purpose is, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become, to, to be conformed to the image of his son. When you see that word predestined, there's a lot of baggage with that word. It simply means this, and in this case, it means that from the very beginning, God had a goal. God set a goal at, before anything ever happened. From the very beginning, God had a goal. What's that goal? That we would bear the image of Christ. And Jesus bears the image of the Father, 
right? That we, our hearts, our character would, would be the same as that of Jesus. And so those he foreknew, he, he decided that's, gonna, that's the goal that we're heading towards. And that's the goal for us individually. And then it says, in order that he might be firstborn among many brothers. His goal is a community of people who all reflect the image of Christ. That's, that's a picture of, of the eternal heaven that we're going to have when we can all live together in this. You know, there's, we don't come in to the eternal kingdom of heaven and then snipe with each other because someone got forgiven more than we got forgiven, right? We, you can't have that dynamic. We're reshaped into the image of Christ. So that's verse 29. That's uh, that he's shaping us to the image of Jesus. And then verse 30 says, and those whom he predestined, who were part of that plan, he also called. So he calls by the Holy Spirit. He calls us to himself. For the younger son, he's calling him back home. For the older son, he's calling him into the feast, into the party, into the celebration. And those he called, he also justified. To be justified means he dealt with our sin, right? He, he forgives all our sins and sets us at, at, at right with, with him. So those he called, he justifies. And those he justified, he also glorified. The, the full glory will be seen in our lives when we are like Christ. The creation waits in eagerly expectation for the sons of God to be revealed for that glorification that he's working on in each, each of us to co- be completed. And so that's what he's working, working at in you and in me. That's what he's inviting you towards. This morning, I'm convinced the Spirit is calling. The Spirit is calling us to be more like Christ. He's, he's leading us into him. And I want you to think about as we, we get ready to close, how is the Holy Spirit shaping you into the image of Christ? What, what, what stumbling blocks are in your heart? Do you have distance in your life with God? Are you, are you dealing with anger and resentment? Do you need to surrender more fully to God's Holy Spirit that he can do this work within you, that we might become more like Jesus in, in all that we are and all that we do. Father, I thank you that, that you have invited us in. You invited us into the celebration, the feast. You invited us into your presence. You're not looking to... to to keep us at a distance, but you're looking to draw us in. Father, I pray for each person here. I, I don't know what you're doing in, in individual hearts, but, but I'm convinced, Father, you are, you are drawing people to yourself. May your spirit show to us things that need to, to be reshaped in our life. May our hearts be just surrendered. May you take away the hearts of stone and replace them with the heart of flesh. Father, Spirit, be at work in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen.